Did you know that Nika AATC offers self-paced online courses on a growing range of topics aimed at helping you improve health outcomes for people with HIV? These interactive courses can typically be completed in about an hour and cover multidisciplinary topics such as smoking cessation in people with HIV, geriatric assessment and integration and models of care, managing difficult behaviors in HIV care settings, and using Zoom as a virtual workspace. Self-paced online courses are offered on RISE, Nika AATC's online learning platform. Courses are designed for healthcare providers providing patient care for people with HIV, including physicians, physician assistants, nurses, pharmacists, case managers, outreach workers, and other disciplines. To explore online courses for HIV care professionals, navigate to www.nikaatc.org slash rise-courses. That's www.nikaatc.org forward slash R-I-S-E dash C-O-U-R-S-E-S or click the link in the podcast episode description. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, we're revisiting an episode that we recorded with Dr. Francine Cornos and Dr. Stephen Abel on the link between oral health and mental health in people with HIV. We talk about baby teeth, depression, and so much more. Please enjoy. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, I'm sitting down with Francine Cornos, MD, Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University and co-PI of the Northeast Caribbean AATC, and Stephen Abel, DDS, Associate Professor at the University of Buffalo School of Dental Medicine and the Dental Director of the Nika AATC, to talk about the connection between oral health and mental health, especially when it comes to HIV care. Welcome, Fran and Stephen. Thanks, Mariana. Happy to be here. So why is it important to talk about the interface between oral health and mental health? Well, we know that individuals with poor mental health experience higher levels of dental disease, such as caries and periodontal disease, higher levels than those with good mental health. For individuals with severe mental illness, they are three times as likely to have lost all of their teeth. And painful missing teeth may result in social withdrawal, isolation, low self-esteem, as well as problems with both speaking and eating. So think of this whole area as one of health disparities. And this disparity in oral health among individuals with common psychologic disorders means that the implications for public health are correspondingly greater. You know, one of the common behavioral health reasons for poor oral health is uh, the association of using alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs, um, either as a mental illness in and of itself or as an adjunct to try and control other mental health symptoms, which people sometimes do. And these medications uh, and these uh, substances can be very toxic. And in particular, we worry about oral cancer. 
So knowing what substances your patient is using helps you to monitor them for, for oral cancer. Uh, dental providers can also dig deeper into these problems by screening for substance use disorder. Uh, but then of course, you'll wanna have a system for referral because if you get a positive screen, you'll need to understand the next step. Uh, I believe that greater consideration is warranted on how enhancing oral health in the course of mental health care treatment might reduce the burden of a person's poor oral health. Uncertainty persists about the role mental health providers can and should play in promoting oral health care for people with mental health disorders. That being said, there is a separate and perhaps no less important role dentists can play in identifying those patients who would be well served through professional mental health counseling. Thus an interface with greater communication between our two professions would seem appropriate for the overall well-being of all of our patients. And what does the peer-reviewed literature say about the associations between oral health and mental health? Okay, so let me start with depressive disorders. Major depression is one of the most common psychiatric diagnoses among people with HIV. One large study out of the CareQuest Institute in Massachusetts was done in 2022. And this was a nationally representative sample of over 5,000 individuals. What did they find? Compared to adults without depression, adults with severe depression are more likely, twice as likely even, to say they do not brush their teeth once or twice a day even, okay? Individuals with depression visit the dentist far less significantly than those without depression. Individuals with depression and high anxiety scores have more missing teeth. And if we looked at the literature, the published literature that is global, what we find is adults with depression demonstrate a higher level of decay, and they have more missing teeth than the general population and certainly those without depression. What else? There's more periodontal disease. It's more prevalent among patients with diagnoses of depression and post-operative prescription drug use following third molar extractions. This was a very interesting study where they had data. They had the charts, the medical and the dental charts of persons who had third molar extractions and these adolescents and young adults were using more post-operative pain medications with among those with depression compared to those without a depression diagnosis. So let, let me look at what we know about tooth decay. And this comes out of the Colgate Institute, okay? So Colgate conducted a survey of more than 20,000 patients in 12 countries around the world. If I focus on the 1,800 parents that were surveyed in the United States, Colgate found that 62% of children suffer from cavities. That's 62% of kids have cavities. And 
when they asked the parents, they said that their children with the cavities feel embarrassed, the kids are worried, the kids are anxious, children with cavities feel that they cannot smile freely, and they're not able to concentrate. So this toll of cavities and the anxiety that is created isn't just experienced by the kids, but also from the parents, okay? The US parents were worried, there was sadness, and they were anxious as a result of their kids' pain. 42% of parents whose children are experiencing oral health issues feel they have failed their child by not preventing these oral diseases, okay? So there is really a subset of the parents and a large subset who feel ashamed and embarrassed by all of this. Thus, there are established linkages between dental and mental health and many untapped opportunities for enhanced collaboration. There are so many fascinating links between mental health and oral health. So for example, a recent study showed that you can help predict mental illness by looking at baby teeth. When baby teeth fall out, if you study them, you can see marks in the enamel for those kids who've gone through stressors. Um, they leave their mark in the teeth and those marks predict future mental illness. When you think about how amazing it is that your dental baby teeth can tell you something about your risk for future mental illness, it really makes you appreciate just how integrated the brain and the body are. That is really fascinating, actually. Um, so how is a dentist able to assess if a patient has a mental health condition? Are these conditions visible or invisible? The answer is that they're both. I want to start out with saying, if you're lucky enough to work in a setting that has an integrated medical record, of course, you could look at the medical record. And I think it's good to do that because then you're better prepared when you see the patient. But the main thing that we do as psychiatrists is what's called the mental status exam. It's a very structured set of observations and questions uh, that follow a specific format. And some of it's focused on things that are often visible and others on things that you would really need to ask questions for. So one of the things I'd like to like you to think about is, suppose you were walking down the street in a neighborhood that didn't feel safe to you. You would be looking at people that were passing you by and you won't be asking them anything. You'll be making your observations based on how they appear. So what will you notice about how they appear? Well, you'll notice their state of consciousness. Do they look very alert? Do they look like they're nodding off? You know, like someone who might, let's say, be intoxicated. How are they dressed? Are they neatly dressed? Are their clothes disheveled? Do they, uh, you know, have an odor of poor hygiene? Uh, then you'll look at their motor activity. Is this a person walking quietly? Is this a person who appears agitated? Is this a person who's making menacing faces? Um, all those things are going to tell you this could be danger. And then mood. Um, mood isn't quite as obvious, but often you can see if somebody is happy or sad, especially if they're crying and they look sad. 
So those are the things that are pretty visible. And those are natural skills that we use for survival and we use them all the time. There's less visible elements that are hard to figure out unless you ask questions. So one is how is the person's thought processes? What are they thinking? Are they thinking logically? Um, what are their, how is their cognition working? Are they intact? Uh, can they remember what they need to remember? Um, how about their perceptions? Are they hearing voices? Are they, you know, seeing uh, visual hallucinations? Um, and how about their judgment, insight, and risk for doing something violent? And many of those categories I just mentioned do require asking questions. But remember that even for those, um, you'll often notice, for example, before there were cell phones, it was always good when you noticed people talking to themselves to realize that, to realize that, that it was probably somebody who was hearing voices. Now, of course, you have to be much more cautious, uh, which I think was helpful to people with psychotic disorders. Um, <clears throat> but my main point is that I think dentists shouldn't feel uh, worried that they have to ask a lot of questions. You, you naturally possess skills to assess people non-verbally. What are some of the major pharmacologic agents that are prescribed for patients being treated for mental health issues? Are there any side effects to these drugs that manifest in the oral cavity? Of course, there are so many different medications because there are so many different mental illnesses. So we have drugs that, you know, for anxiety, for depression, for attention deficit disorder, for psychosis. And in fact, all told, 16% of people in the general U.S. population are taking a psychotropic medication. The most common side effect that's troublesome from the oral health perspective is dry mouth, which is also called xerostomia. And I think um, Steve can best describe that. Um, yes, uh, these psychotropic medications, like the antipsychotics, the antidepressants, the mood stabilizers, all induce dry mouth okay, through a reduced salivary flow. Now, symptoms of this dry mouth include oral soreness, oral burning, difficult swallowing, difficult even talking. It alters your taste. It increases the risk of dental decay when you don't have saliva in your mouth. It contributes to periodontal disease. It can promote and exacerbate candidiasis. Saliva has an important role of holding in dentures. And finally, patients with dry mouth often sip or suck on sweet or acidic drinks or candies to relieve the symptoms, to relieve the soreness, to get some saliva flowing in the mouth. And this can all increase the risk of dental decay. So here, education is key to addressing the xerostomia as well as oral hygiene in general. Um, more frequent brushing, flossing, paying attention to the diet, the frequency of the eating. Prescribers, dentists and primary, other primary care providers can prescribe fluoride dentifrices that have a higher fluoride content 
in it. That is why it is by prescription and not over the counter. And finally, sugarless mints or lozenges or gum to stimulate saliva production and caries resistance is critical here. If it's really problematic, you might decide you want to coordinate what you're doing with the person prescribing the psychotropic medications. And with the patient's permission, you can call and discuss whether there might be other medications that would work just as well and didn't have such severe side effects. In, in psychiatry, we have a lot of different medications for each disorder that we treat. So we do have choices and it's important to know that. What strategies can dentists use when responding to patients who they believe have mental health conditions? So brief matter of fact, conversations about obvious problems are very helpful. And the dentist can be begin with simple observations or statements such as, your dental problem is common in people who use stimulants. Let's talk about your recreational drug use so we can figure this out together. So you can see that's very non-judgmental and it shows the importance of it to the oral health goal that you have for the patient. Um, or let's say the patient is crying. In a way, it's awkward not to say anything. It probably makes a lot of sense to just say, um, I see that you're crying and see if the patient wants to talk about it. Or say, may I ask what's wrong? Again, you don't want to get into long conversations, but I'm going to get to the point where how you're going to be brief. Um, and then you may see that your patient who you've, let's say, known for a while, always comes in with poor oral hygiene. You might be able to ask to, uh, the patient, are you having trouble getting supplies for uh, toothpaste, toothbrushes, dental floors, just to make sure that there isn't a social determinant that's interfering with maintaining good oral health. Um, sometimes when you're trying to decide if you should carry forward on a procedure, you're making an assessment of whether the patient is ready for the procedure. If the patient comes in very intoxicated, you may decide this is not the right time to do it. Um, if the patient is too agitated, you might also decide that maybe let's reschedule this and come back at another time, or that the patient is so agitated uh, that you want to get an immediate referral. Um, we don't necessarily, unless it's an emergency procedure, have to do something at that moment. So we can decide if the patient isn't really mentally ready for it, how to reschedule it, or how to help the patient with the problem that's interfering. I agree with everything Fran has just said. It's important to remember to be non-judgmental and reassuring. Remembering that the patient sees us as his or her trusted caregiver and demonstrating a level of compassion, a level of caring can go a long, long way. How do these strategies differ between dentists in solo practice and those that provide care within a larger health care setting, such as a federally qualified health center or FQHC? It's usually easier to integrate care when you're working in an organization that has a whole range of different services. So let's say you're providing oral health, but the organization has mental health and substance use treatment. In those situations, it's good to have some procedures, and there are many different ways to set them up so that you can do consultation, collaboration, cross-referrals. Uh, so because the services are right there, I would say that's easier.
But many dentists are in solo practice and they want to be able to figure out how to advise patients that they can't help with a specific issue where they might be able to go. So it's very important to have resources available to you to know what where you might refer somebody um, who comes in with a problem that you're not prepared to address. Um, and then it would include a substance use or mental health problem. Just as a solo practitioner would keep a list of referrals for specialty dental services, it's incumbent upon the practitioner to have community resources that can be shared with the patients of the practice. This would certainly include a listing of where mental health resources are available within the community and actually becoming familiar with the site that you're recommending is a very smart step. So to sum up, what is the best advice you can give when you believe the patient in your dental chair may be best served by accessing mental health services? I would say first, remember that untreated mental health problems will likely undermine your own oral health goals. So one of the reasons you're motivated to do something about it is because you want to be able to achieve your goals and if they won't necessarily happen in the presence of untreated mental illness and substance use. I've always liked the concept of no wrong door, meaning once a patient enters a setting, whatever the healthcare setting is, it's the right place to go for whatever the problem is that they're having. You don't necessarily have to be the one providing all the services, but you can certainly be the one noticing the problems that are occurring. And I find this makes my job much more interesting than if I was totally narrowly focused on my psychiatric goals. So when someone walks into my office, whether I know them well or I don't, you know, I look to see what's obvious. If a person has a cast on their arm, I might say, oh, what happened to your arm? Um, I can tell you that with patients I've known well, I have often been able to diagnose medical illnesses that even their own medical providers hadn't been able to diagnose. And sometimes I've saved lives by referring people for a medical problem um, when they were having something serious going on that was not connected to their psychiatric illness. And I want to say that I take just as much pride when I'm able to do that and get somebody treated for a medical problem as I do when I provide psychiatric care. So what Fran calls no wrong door, I once called the back door. Now I'm not sure it's just the back door, it's either the back door and the front door. By that, I mean that all health practices can be seen as a portal into other primary care services. We can and we do screen for diabetes, hypertension, HIV, and some practices now are even screening for depression. This is being done across the Indian Health Service, for instance. Yes, we can screen for a host of conditions, often through blood or saliva. But sometimes screening can be accomplished by just asking a few simple questions and listening to our patients. And this is what Fran has repeated throughout this time, okay? With the information from our patients, we can deliver the care that everybody wants, okay? We can make the appropriate referrals and we can truly be members of the primary care team. 
Brand, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us and telling listeners all about the importance of the interface between oral and mental health, particularly when it comes to HIV care. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nekaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.